From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now, on to the history guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The history guy is also heard here at Our American Stories. The life of the youngest ever winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, Rudyard Kipling, was filled with tragedy. He survived a difficult childhood to go on to become one of the most celebrated authors of his day, penning such classics as The Jungle Book and Just So Stories. Here's the history guy with the story of Rudyard Kipling. Now in India's sunny clime, where I used to spend my time serving of Her Majesty the Queen, of all the black-faced crew, the finest man I knew was Regimental Beastie, Gunga Din. Was Din, 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 you limpin' lump of brick dust, Gunga Din. High slippery hitherto, water bring it parry low, you squishy-nosed old idol, Gunga Din. Written in 1890, the poem Gunga Din was one of the most famous poems in the world in its time. Chronicles the life of a British soldier in India and offers an unlikely hero in the person of Gunga Din, the regimental water-bearer, who represents an idea perhaps surprising to the soldier narrator that a person's worth is not defined by their race. The poem has inspired films and songs, and its famous last line, You're a better man than I am, Gunga Din, is an oft-quoted bit of praise. But the author of the poem, the youngest person ever to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature, lived a tragic life. Rudyard Kipling, the author of such beloved classics as The Jungle Book and Captain's Courageous, suffered an abusive and difficult childhood, went on to become one of the most famous authors of his time, but lived a life of tragedy. The father of three, only one of his children would survive him. 
Rudyard Kipling was born to Lockwood Kipling, who was the head of an art school, and his wife Alice in Bombay, India on December 30th, 1865. They entrusted the early care of their son to an Indian nurse, who carried the young Kipling with her during her daily duties to the bazaar. He was with her so much that Kipling's first language, and the one that he said he spoke in his dreams, was Hindi, but the nurse always reminded Kipling to speak only English to his parents, so that they didn't necessarily know the extent of his fluency. Kipling's parents were concerned about the health of their amiable son. He was nicknamed the little friend of the world because of his friendly attitude. And their second child, a daughter named Alice, whom everyone called Trix, who was born a few years later. Typhoid, cholera, and other epidemics were common, partially because the causes of the disease were unknown and the Kiplings believed their children would be safer from potential illness back in England. They found a boarding house in the south of England that seemed like the perfect place. But they apparently didn't check all the appropriate references, and it was an unfortunate decision for Rudyard and Trix. The family that ran the boarding house, called the Holloways, told the children that their parents had left them behind in England because they had been bad. There never seemed to be enough to eat. Kipling recalled the lady of the house quizzing him about his daily activities and then picking apart his every answer in an effort to catch him in a lie. The Holloway's son cruelly beat the five-year-old Kipling with his fists. If the children cried after receiving a letter from their parents, they were locked in the basement for an entire day. The word help was carved into the house's walls by one of the children kept by the Holloway's. It was bleak. Kipling forever after called the place the House of Desolation. Later in life, Kipling wrote a semi-autobiographical novel entitled Ba Ba Black Sheep that detailed the lives of a six and three-year-old who were left in the care of an abusive family in the south of England. Kipling's readers didn't know that he had modeled the story after his own life. For when young lips have drunk deep of the bitter waters of hate, suspicion, and despair, all the love in the world will not wholly take away that knowledge, though it may turn darkened eyes for a while to the light and teach faith where no faith was. Baba Blacksheep, 1889. After Rudyard's mother came to take care of children home six years later, she was putting Kipling to bed and went to give him a kiss goodnight. He automatically threw up his hands, as if to ward off an attack. It was then that she realized how awful the boarding house life had been to her children. The emotional scars ran deep. Trix would struggle with what might be now labeled as bipolar disorder for her entire life. Rudyard, on the other hand, had intermittent periods of what he called depression and, according to some historians, an inability to form a close relationship with his wife. Kipling said he dealt with his variable moods by working long hours, sometimes as much as 16 hours in a day. He would later write to a friend, My head is all queer and I'm going to have to have it mended someday. But that someday never seemed to come. Kipling received his formal education at United Services College in Devon. It was another boarding school, and one at which he didn't necessarily thrive. He recalled being terrified as his fellow students hung him by his ankles out of the window on the fifth floor of a dormitory. Never particularly athletic, the dreamy and bookish Kipling was described as an indifferent student. Yet there be certain times in a young man's life when, through great sorrow or sin, all the boy in him is burnt and seared away, so that he passes at one step to the more sorrowful state of manhood. The Dream of Duncan Perinus 1884. But there were echoes of Kipling's earlier amiable attitude towards the world. One of his classmates remembered him as a capering, podgy little fellow, as precocious as ever could be. When he finished his time at United Services College, Kipling took a job at a newspaper near his parents in Lahore, India, which is now in Pakistan. Kipling began publishing his poetry, which was incredibly well received by the public almost from the beginning of his career. He formed a close relationship with an American publicist in London named Walcott Ballastier. And when Ballastier unexpectedly died, Kipling married the deceased man's sister, Carrie, in January 1892. The rush wedding was small, with only four people in attendance, because London had virtually come to a standstill. There was a crippling influenza epidemic sweeping the city. Kipling described the atmosphere in his biography as, It was in the thick of an influenza epidemic, when the undertakers had run out of black horses, and the dead had to be content with brown ones. And you're listening to the History Guy tell the story of the youngest winner in the history of the Nobel Prize for Literature, Rudyard Kipling. And what a childhood he suffered at the hands of, my goodness, monsters. The House of Desolation, the story of the boarding house he grew up in. An indifferent student, you hear that a lot about really talented folks. 
their indifferent students because they just haven't been tapped for their potential and their talent. We capture that often on the stories we tell here when we continue more of the remarkable life of poet and writer Rudyard Kipling here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Rudyard Kipling. Let's return to the History Guy. The couple honeymooned in the United States for a time and went on to Japan, where they received news that their bank had collapsed and taken much of their fortune with it. They returned to the States, Carrie's home country, purchased a home near her family in Brattleboro, Vermont. Carrie Kipling discovered she was pregnant and gave birth to the couple's first child, Josephine, on December 29, 1892. In his biography, Kipling wrote that his daughter was born in three foot of snow on the night of 29 December, 1892. Her mother's birthday being the 31st and mine the 30th on the same month. We congratulated her on her sense of the fitness of things. Kipling described this period of his life as the happiest and most productive of his career. He loved living in the countryside of Vermont, away from the noisy cities or temptations like alcohol or opium. He wrote such classics as The Jungle Book, Captain's Courageous, both of which would later be made into films, and other books filled with short stories and poetry. Now this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky, and the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back, for the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. The Second Jungle Book, 1895. In 1896, Carrie gave birth to the couple's second child, a daughter named Elsie, and a son quickly followed in 1897, whom they named John. Kipling began telling his eldest daughter, Josephine, whom he called Effie, versions of his now-beloved just-so stories for little children, every night before bed. He said, In the evening there were stories meant to put Effie to sleep, and you were not allowed to alter those by one single little word that would be told just so, or Effie would wake up and put back the missing sentence. So at last they came to be like charms, all three of them, the whale tail, the camel tail, and the rhinoceros tail. The Gesso stories are imaginative stories about how animals begin to look and act the way they do in nature. The titles detail each story. There's how the whale got his throat and how the camel got his hump. The enduring popularity of these stories speaks to the loving care with which Kipling wrote them for his children. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and where and when and how and why and who. The Elephant's Child, 1902. The Kipling's idyllic existence in the United States ended when Kipling had a public run-in with Carrie's brother, Beatty Ballister. Ballister struggled with addiction to alcohol and money troubles. After publicly threatening to blow off Kipling's head, Ballister was arrested and a trial followed, which drew quite a lot of attention from the press because of Kipling's popularity as an author. As for his part, Kipling seemed to mourn the loss of his privacy and eventually moved his family back to England in an effort to reclaim it. We're all islands, shouting lies to each other across seas of misunderstanding. The Light That Failed, 1891. Unfortunately, he suffered one of the largest losses of his life. The Kipling's eldest daughter, Josephine, age six, succumbed to pneumonia on March 6th, 1899. Kipling had been ill at the same time, and at first the family feared that they would lose them both. However, Kipling survived to discover that his daughter had not. The world is very lovely, and it is very horrible, and it doesn't care about your life or mine, or anything else. The Light That Failed, 1891. When the Just So Stories for Children was first published in 1902, Kipling illustrated the stories himself. The timing of the publication, so soon after the loss of Josephine, was particularly poignant. Lost forever after changed the author according to those close to him. The man who had once been described as a friend of the world smiled and laughed a little less often. Kipling's sister, Trix, said he became a sadder and a harder man. 
Kipling received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1907 and remains the youngest person ever to have obtained the honor. But his star seemed already to be fading. He espoused imperialistic political ideas and encouraged countries to pursue imperialistic policies. Kipling wrote the poem The White Man's Burden in an effort to encourage the United States to take a more active role in the Philippines. Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. The White Man's Burden, 1899. He was also in support of the Great War, World War I, encouraged his son John to serve the conflict. At first, John failed a medical examination to join the Royal Navy because of his weak eyesight. He attempted to list two more times, but was rejected both times. And then using his father's connections, Kipling joined the Irish Guards, took part in the bloody Battle of Luz, the largest British assault of 1915. John Kipling, age 18, was assumed to have been blown apart by shells, and no piece of his corpse was ever recovered for his family to mourn over. In 2015, the Commonwealth Grave Commission announced it had located the grave of John Kipling, whose remains had been buried in a French cemetery. If any question why we died, tell them. Because our fathers lied. Epitaphs of War, 1918. This second loss hit Kipling and his wife incredibly hard. Kipling said he read the novels of Jane Austen to his wife and remaining daughter over and over again in an effort to shake the grief he felt at John's death. He also joined the group that would later become the Commonwealth War Graves Commission in honor of his lost son. Kipling suggested some of the biblical verses the commission put on the stones of the war dead. He also wrote a regimental history of the Irish Guards, which was published in 1923. It has been considered by some to be one of the best examples of a regimental history ever penned. And there were two, many, almost children of whom no record remains. They came out of Warley with the constant renewed drafts, lived the span of a second lieutenant's life, and were spent. The Irish Guards in the Great War, 1923. While mourning his lost children, Kipling's health began a steady decline. Kipling suffered from duodenal ulcers, which it is believed eventually killed him at age 70. The writer's ashes are interred at Westminster Abbey's Poet's Corner, lives forever into the remains of Thomas Hardy and Charles Dickens. Kipling's only surviving child, Elsie, married George Bambridge, a diplomat, in 1924. She never had any children, so Kipling's bloodline ended, and she died on April 24, 1976. Like some celebrities today, Kipling's death was reported ahead of its time. Reading about it in a magazine, he wrote to the magazine, I've just read that I died. Don't forget to delete me from your list of subscribers. Many of his political viewpoints, notably about imperialism, no longer held sway in the international world as he grew older, and he did receive much criticism for that. George Orwell described him as a jingo imperialist who was morally insensitive and a gutter patriot. His literary career had a meteoric rise, but then seemed to stagnate, and he often spoke to friends about the foibles of early fame. Like his idyllic views of empire, in many ways, Rudyard Kipling seemed to become history even before his days had passed, especially in the way that the loss of his children affected him. But what is left of Rudyard Kipling when everything else is turned to dust are his writings. Like perhaps his most famous poem, If, penned in 1895, which seems to represent his tragic life, but exhorts us all to be the best that we can be, even in the face of terrible loss. If you can make one heap of all your winnings, risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, lose, start again at your beginnings, never say one word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your term long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will that tells them all hold on. If you can talk to crowds and keep your virtue, walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foe nor loving friend can hurt you, if all men matter to you, but none too much. If you can fill the everlasting minute with 60 seconds of distance run, then yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And what's more, you'll be a man, my son. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler bringing us the story. And a special thanks, as always, to the history guy, History Deserves to be Remembered. That's where you can find him and his work on the YouTube channel. History Guy, History Deserves to be Remembered. Just do that Google search and you'll enjoy what you see. Poet's Corner is remarkable all by itself with memorials. 
but the very few who actually got buried there include, as was indicated, not just Dickens and Chaucer and Tennyson, but in the end, Kipling too, joining this august breed. And in addition, there are memorials for Jane Austen and Blake the poet and Auden and Lewis Carroll and C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and the list goes on and on. There was something special about the British talent, the literature, poetry, and all else. It may be one of the great special gifts that the British gave us was a shared and common language, not just the laws, but the common language. The story of Rudyard Kipling, a story of loss and tragedy and beauty, here on Our American Story. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. 
you know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma? Like I called my grandmother. So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with our American stories. And up next, we're going to have a little fun. If you're having a rough day, this story is sure to make you smile. Guide Dogs for the Blind is the largest guide dog school in North America and the second largest in the world. Christine Binninger, CEO of Guide Dogs for the Blind, is here to share her stories about some possum friends and all that they do. Please forgive me for all the dog puns. Here's Christine with this beautiful story. Guide Dogs for the Blind was founded in 1942 to serve individuals who were blinded during World War II. The very first founders of Guide Dogs for the Blind were military dog trainers. They had the idea that dogs could make a real difference in people's lives and helping them negotiate life with more freedom and more independence. We breed labs, golden retrievers, and then we breed a cross between the two. Dogs are individually just as different as people. So dog personalities, wants, needs, the way they act, each dog is unique. But that works for us and the reason is our clients are unique. Part of the magic of Guide Dogs for the Blind is the matching process and finding exactly the right match. And that match is based on what your lifestyle is. If you're somebody who works in downtown Manhattan and takes you know, a train and then a bus to get into your office every day, and you have to walk the streets of Manhattan, that's, that's a little bit of a different dog than you know, if you're living in a suburb and you know, maybe you're doing volunteer work every day or you're meeting friends for coffee. Different dogs like to work in different environments. We match by personality. If you are somebody who's super outgoing and really likes talking with people, We're going to match you with a dog that's super outgoing and is going to elicit that interaction for you. If you're somebody who's a little more reserved and, you know, you just want to get from point A to point B, you really don't want to be talking with a lot of people along the way, we're going to match you with a dog that's a little more reserved and won't elicit as much. We also make certain that we match our clients' preferences. We have clients that their visual impairment allows them to see dark colors. So we'll match them with a black lab or allows them to see lighter colors. So we'll match them with a yellow lab or a golden retriever. The matching process is complicated, as you can well imagine. You've got a lot of different traits that we have to match for the person, and you know, dogs each have their different traits as well. And that's why I say there's always a bit of magic in every single match that's made. We were the first service dog organization ever to employ positive reinforcement training methods. Traditional training methods basically set a dog up to fail and then you punish them for failure with the theory being that the dog remembers that and doesn't want to be punished again. Positive reinforcement training is setting the dog up for success and rewarding them for success. It feels a lot better to be set up for success and being rewarded for that versus being set up for failure. It's made a huge difference for our dogs. So the interesting thing is that the skills of a dog trained with essentially punishment-based training versus positive reinforcement training, their skills are just as good. The difference is the excitement about working. So a punishment-based dog who's been trained in that methodology isn't excited about going to work. 
because what they're thinking is that, oh my God, if I get something wrong, I'm going to be punished. Dogs that are trained with a positive reinforcement methodology are so excited to work. It's like, oh my God, the harness is out. Yes, 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 let's go. And honestly, that makes a huge difference. And it just, it makes you feel better too. The other interesting thing is that when we were using punishment-based training, it took us 24 weeks to train a guide dog in their skills. Positive reinforcement training, it now takes us 12 weeks. So you can see there's so many benefits to it, not only from the psychological aspects to the dogs, but they learn much faster. And that allows us to be able to train more guide dogs and train more clients. People have to really commit to the guide dog lifestyle. In order for a guide dog to be successful, you have to get them onto a routine. Guide dogs are trained not to relieve themselves in harness. So we all need bathroom breaks, right? You need to make certain that you're consistently feeding at the same times, that you're consistently relieving at the same times. You have to take your dog to the vet. I mean, so even the way that we interface with our clients is all unique. We don't charge for any of our services. We fly people out to our campuses. They live with us for two weeks and train with their dogs. We fly them home and then we continue to follow up with our clients to make sure that things are working well. And in addition to that, we also pay for all the veterinary costs over the dog's lifetime to make certain that no one is put in a position of saying, do I pay my rent or do I take you know, my dog to the vet. Our dogs are trained athletes, have to be kept in peak condition. So we want to always make certain that our guide dogs have the best medical care. And all of our work is supported through donation. It's a huge community that supports guide dogs for the blind. We have approximately 300 staff members and over 4,000 volunteers. So we actually start training our dogs at three days of age. We have a whole group of volunteers called cuddlers who start cuddling our babies. And that's literally what they do. They cuddle them so that these babies become used to people, become used to human touch. And there's nothing scary about a person starting very early on with very gentle, loving touch, which the puppies react to obviously in a positive way. It says a lot about our breeders. A brand new mama allowing somebody to sit with her babies and hold her babies at three days of age is pretty remarkable. Our clients range in age from 14 to 94. What the qualifications are for getting a guide dog are that you are legally blind, that you have a need to go somewhere every day. That doesn't mean that you have to have a job. You know something, every day, at a minimum, I get out and I go for a walk. And the reason for that is the team needs to work together every day. Otherwise, you as a handler lose your skills or the guide dog loses their skills. In order to keep that team working seamlessly together, you've gotta to get out and work every day. The third requirement is that you already have the orientation and mobility skills Guide dogs are not GPS systems. You can't just say to your guide dog, take me to the nearest Starbucks. <laughs> you have to know essentially where that Starbucks is, and then you need to give your dog the commands for how to get there, and your dog will get you there safely. And the fourth requirement is that you are living somewhere that will support a guide dog. Oftentimes, particularly in rural environments, there are a lot of off-leash aggressive dogs. If a guide dog feels that they're going to be attacked every time that they walk out their door, typically, then they're gonna stop working. So if people meet those four criteria, then we bring them you know, into our school and they get a guide dog. Nearly 16,000 teams have graduated since our founding. Very proud of that. And you've been listening to Christine Benninger, CEO of Guide Dogs for the Blind. And my goodness, what a scaled operation she's running. And it's at the behest of so many donors who want to see this happen. When we come back, more of this great American story of Guide Dogs for the Blind and so much more 
By the way, that whole cuddling thing sounds like we could all use such a, an endeavor or such a week. When we come back, more of this great story here on Our American Stories. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. 
Last question. I promise you have to go. I have to go. But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we return to Our American Stories and to Christine Binninger's story, the CEO of Guide Dogs for the Blind. Here's Christine to talk about the dogs and all that goes into the unique training for these very special animals. When you look at service dogs and all the different things that service dogs do, guide work is the most complicated for two reasons. One is that guide dogs have to get everything right 100% of the time. They can't just walk their person into traffic once, or they can't walk you into a light pole once. So guide dogs get no second chances. They've got to do it right. Secondly, they have to evaluate whether the command they're given is going to keep the team safe or not. And if the guide dog believes it won't keep the team safe, it'll have to disobey the command and do exactly the opposite. Now, that's even tough for humans. I don't know how often you say no to your boss, but that's a hard thing to do. And dogs live in a hierarchy. So basically saying no to their boss, it takes a special dog to be able to do that. If a dog is given a command to cross the street and that handler is not hearing the electric car that's coming around the corner, the dog has to pull their handler away from the street rather than walking into the street. So that's an example of what we call intelligent disobedience. Guide dogs are trained to do all kinds of things. When you walk into a room or you walk onto a bus, they are trained to find you an open seat. So they'll take you to the first available open seat. Many of our clients train their dogs for very specific things. Like we have a client, she said, wherever I go, I've always got, you know, my water bottle with me. And so I'm always looking for recycling bins. So she's trained her guide dog when she needs to, to find a recycling bin so that she can get rid of her water bottle. You can train your dog to take you to Starbucks. Once your dog knows where Starbucks is, and that's where you go on a regular basis, you can just say, take me to Starbucks. All kinds of things like that. What I'll call the magic of guide dogs is that the team becomes so close because the, the team is together 24-7 and relies on each other. Our guide dogs are not trained in being able to sense medical changes in our clients. Somehow they get to know their person well enough that they do. This happened about two years ago. We have a client that does work in Manhattan. She works in one of those buildings that is like a gazillion floors. And so you have to take a very specific elevator to your bank of, of floors. And so her guide dog knows exactly which elevator to go to. And one particular day, her guide dog didn't take her to the bank of elevators, but took her to a group of couches that were sort of off the lobby. And when she got to the group of couches, she realized she wasn't feeling very well. She sat down and had a stroke. So did her guide dog, I cry, <laughs> sorry. Did her guide dog know that she was gonna have a stroke? No, but the guide dog knew something was wrong. What our guide dogs do is take care of their people. So the guide dog knew getting in that elevator probably wasn't the best thing to do. Getting her to a safer spot was the best thing to do. Those kinds of stories happen all the time, not through training, but through that relationship that grows between a guide dog and their person. What I find really remarkable about our clients is the different types of things that people do. Our clients are mothers raising three children. We have people who are business people. We have people who are chefs, who are musicians, who are teachers. 
We actually have a couple of clients that have just competed in the Paralympics over in Japan. What a guide dog does is give people confidence to be able to do what they want to do in life. And so as a result, you see these just remarkable things that our clients do. We have a client that's, he's a professional hiker. He's hiked with his guide dog, the Pacific Crest Trail. He's hiked the Appalachian Trail. I mean, he's hiked all over the world. And he does that as someone who's blind with a guide dog out for days and days and days by himself. All of that, in my mind, is truly remarkable. Guide Dogs for the Blind has made a concerted effort to target youth. Kids have a tendency to not want to be sort of called out as different, right? And so much of who we become as adults is based on what we experience as a young person. So canine buddies, they're not guide dogs, but they are companion dogs, well-trained companion dogs for individuals who are too young yet to get a guide dog. We do have a lower age limit, but we don't have an upper age limit. We're giving canine buddies to families with children as young as five. And what a canine buddy does is not only start to orient kids around dogs, but most importantly is building their confidence. You know, hearing from parents about how, you know, their five-year-old was not making friends in school, afraid to dress themselves, wouldn't go to the bathroom on their own, mommy had to be there. And once they had a canine buddy, all of a sudden wanting to be independent, getting dressed on their own, starting to make friends. They're the kind of coolest kid on the block with this really neat dog. Some kids have night terrors with a canine buddy. Those night terrors go away. So canine buddies, while they're not specifically service dogs, make a huge difference in the life of very young children. Then we have a whole host of programs that are targeted towards high school kids. That's a very sort of vulnerable time, right? Wasn't my best years if I think about high school. So we have things like what we call GDB camp for high school kids to get together with other kids with similar disabilities. They actually have the opportunity to work with a guide dog, sleep with a guide dog overnight, plus just have a great time just being campers, just being kids. We fly kids in from all over North America and there's all kinds of fun things to do, you know, tandem bike riding, canoeing, swimming. Uh, this last year, we actually had the kids visit a llama farm and have the opportunity to walk a llama. They all agreed that walking a guide dog was a lot easier than walking a, a llama. <laughs> Oftentimes, kids that have a visual disability don't know anybody else who, who does. So lifelong friendships are made. It's a great place. It's a fun place. We've grown from a very small, fledgling organization to really, you know, the largest guide school in North America. That's not easy. So I'm very grateful to my counterparts who were a part of this organization and set the stage for who we are today. Because of their efforts, we've been able to grow, we've been able to fund ourselves, and really become the leader in the guide dog industry. It's a huge community that supports our work. I've always been inspired by the difference that animals make in our lives. It's really an honor to be a part of this organization because this is an organization that saves lives. It gives people their independence and allows people to live the, the life that they want to live. And I can't think of anything more inspirational than that. And a great job, as always, on the production and the storytelling by Madison. And a special thanks to Christine Benninger, the CEO of Guide Dogs for the Blind, to learn more and to help support their mission Go to guidedogs.com. And by the way, this is just a perfect example of American generosity at work. She's working at a nonprofit. People are donating money. People are volunteering. They're cuddling with dogs. All of these things they're doing to help a stranger's life. 
just move along a little better. And my goodness, what she said about what the dog's mission was, what our guide dogs do is take care of their people. And they do it not through the mere training, but through the strong relationship they build with their client. And anyone who has an animal knows what that relationship means. And a special thanks to all the people who support this great organization. Again, go to guidedogs.com if you love the mission and go ahead and help them do what they do. The story of Christine Benninger, the story of Guide Dogs for the Blind, and the story in the end of the generosity of the American people here on Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.